Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Ann Tholis. We'll be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard Carmen and John offer their memories of the witness testimonies that they considered particularly damaging to the defense case. In this episode, they recall the testimonies of those individuals who have remained steadfastly loyal to Robert Durst. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming right up after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with juror number 12 and jury foreperson Carmen Kleteka by asking her her memory of the testimony of Robert Durst's friend and so-called running buddy, Doug Oliver. Let's shift things up a little bit and talk about Doug Oliver. I love Doug Oliver. He was so outrageous. He was great for waking us up. I mean, not that we were asleep on the jury. He was just so outrageous. I couldn't believe some of the stuff that he was saying. And I couldn't believe like he was a real person. He seemed like a cartoon character. He was like from an SNL skit or something. It was just so bad. But, and, you know, for that reason, he's, he's memorable. So, you know, I, I had never been on a, a, a jury before, and I've never really looked at, watched a case or anything like that. So I guess this is my first exposure to a hostile witness. And I, I think he's probably at the severe end of the spectrum. So he was very, very, very loyal to Bob. He clearly was prepared. I mean, it was clear that he had some sort of preparation and they were like on this hostile witness preparation program. I mean, that was really clear that he had undergone something and they were, they had some sort of pact to stick together and don't let them break you or I don't know, whatever. This is just what was going through my mind. I might be like completely off, but that was my impression. I didn't think, you know, when he like swore to tell the truth and, and all that stuff, I don't think that oath really meant anything to him. or I don't think he had any intention of following that. So I was at the edge of my seat just to see how far is this guy going to go? And is the prosecution team going to be able to hold him down and make him talk? They started out talking about what it was like to just get him to come over he he gave some pretty outrageous demands, and one of them was he wanted the state of California to 
fly him out on a private jet. He said that's the only way he was going to come out to testify, which I thought was hilarious among some of the other things that he said. But that's sort of the thing that kind of stood out. And then, you know, when he walked into the courtroom, that was the first time that I saw Robert Durst actually turn around and look towards the door. He looked very excited. He looked like he was waiting for somebody to come in. It was just very strange. You know, he was always just sitting facing the front of the courtroom towards the judge. And this time when we walked into the courtroom first thing in the morning, he was actually facing the other direction and he kept looking at the door. And when he does that, he wasn't looking at the door. He would face the back of the room and that's where the jurors were sitting at the time because of the COVID social distancing. And he would just stare at us. Unfortunately, I sat right behind him. So I was often the <laughs> target of those stares. But, you know, I got used to them. And then he would take turns. He would stare at the person sitting behind me. And then the day that Doug Oliver came in, he wasn't staring at any of us. He was looking at the door, which I didn't really think anything of at the time. But then Doug Oliver walks in. It's this big, tall guy with a big presence. And as soon as he came through the doors, Bob's face lit up. And I had never seen him show any emotion up until that day. And he raised his hand. I think they did like a little fist thing. And then he quickly turned around and got in his chair. And then Doug Oliver was sworn in. I can't believe that he would just stare at you. I hadn't heard that before. I mean, you heard a lot of testimony about Durst's strategy with the jury, trying to gain sympathy. Actually, Carrie, there's a reason why you haven't heard it, because I've never told anybody before. This is my first time. So what do you think he was trying to communicate by staring at you or other jurors? I don't know, but I didn't want to say anything at the time. I didn't want to bring that to life. I wanted to just end it right there. Yeah, I never, I never told John Lewin or the bailiff or the judge or anyone. At the time, did you think he was trying to send a message to you? I think so. The juror who sat behind me, directly behind me, he came up to me in the parking lot one day and he said, hey, can we talk for a minute? And so I said, yeah, sure. And he said, hey, are you okay? I noticed Durst stares at you a lot. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm fine. And he's like, what's that all about? I said, I, I don't know. But I just, I just ignore him. I just, I keep looking straight as if he wasn't there. And I'm not about to give him the benefit of looking back at him. And was it always just an expressionless stare? Or did he ever change expressions, communicate, smile in any way? No, never. I, I mean, I know that look. He was trying to intimidate me, but I was not going to give him the benefit of that. You know, I've gone through I've gone through a lot in my life and a little stare from some little old guy in a wheelchair is not going to do anything to me. I was just cleaning out my desk. As I told you, I, I recently moved, so a bunch of my stuff got moved around. And I did find a little note that I wrote during that time. It was very, very short, but I think it was significant. I just said, why is he staring at me? And I just wrote down, is he sizing me up? 
is he looking for a reaction? So what I meant by that is I think he was looking to see if, if I'm spooked. Part of the defense that Durst attorneys said that they were going to bring was something related to Bob having Asperger's or what is being on the autistic spectrum and having what used to be called Asperger's. And I gather that that resonated for you in a personal way, that that Bob was somehow a special needs person. Can you tell me a bit about your response to that line of argument? Oh, absolutely. I just, I couldn't believe they were going there. That especially hit a nerve with me because I have a child who has special needs and there's such a huge struggle associated with that. And it's, it's insulting, frankly, for someone to try and use that as an excuse as a tool to finagle their way out of of going to jail. or I think they were going to use this any way that they could. And I felt like they had that sort of ready in their back pocket to use at their convenience and to see what they could get out of. People who don't really have special needs, and, and it's not, not just with special needs, it's other things too, like people claiming things that aren't true to gain sympathy. It's just disgusting because my own child has special needs and we have personally endured that struggle. There's so many issues associated with it. You know, it affects um, not only the child or, or the person that's affected, but the whole family. And it's especially insulting, I think, to see to see somebody like that make that claim. And I actually expected them to go further into that than what they did. I was bracing for what was to come. But luckily, they just touched on it and didn't go into it much further. And that's a good thing. I I really didn't want to go through that. That would have been upsetting. Okay, so let's move on to Jean Clark and Susie Giordano. Oh, my goodness, those two. I would say I was equally disgusted by both. And in a weird way, I felt kind of bad for Bob Durst because these people who were pre- clearly pretending to be interested in him were just after his money. Even Douglas Oliver, it's like they were all like cut from the same cloth. It made me think about one of the benefits of not being a millionaire or a, I mean a billionaire because, you know, we have to think about that too. We got to see the silver lining. We don't have to worry about people like this in our lives and and coming after us, right? So that's a benefit. How horrible would it be? Parasites. So I'll start with Jean Clark. She was very hostile. Clearly, she was prepped to be a hostile witness, just like Douglas Oliver. They looked like they had all read the same little handbook. And uh, she was, uh, you know, very, uh, very proud of herself on the stand. She was very arrogant. It was clear that she had this objective that she, you know, she wasn't going to break and she wasn't going to whatever, help or participate in any way. And if she did a good job, there was going to be some sort of payoff. That was, of course, my impression that there would be some sort of payoff because she was, you know, working really hard to evade any questions. And sure enough, 
she, I think they played a recording from a phone call. And I guess it, it seemed like Robert Durst had like promised to give her like a million dollars or something. And they were discussing some of the details of that. So, you know, that sort of made sense. And then the other one, Susie Giordano, she looked like she had her her eye on Durst since uh, she met him. She was very young, early 20s or something. And she said she had told his friend, I forget his name, Nick. Chavin. Nick Chavin, yeah. Yeah, she used to work with him. So anyway, yeah, she told him, you got to set me up with him. So yeah, she had been uh, pursuing him for uh, many years already. I don't think she was pursuing him. I think she was pursuing his money. And so she was more invested. This was sort of her second chance. And she had these grown children, grown men that were like her helpers. So they were all trying to get their hands on, on that. That was pretty clear to me. The whole purpose of her being there and doing all that stuff was with that goal in mind. And, you know, she just had to do a couple of things, like some illegal activities, sending him sending him money and preparing that suitcase. I mean, she was so ridiculous. She was uh, on the stand, like, pretending like she had no idea and she didn't know. And she just, I felt like I was watching a child lie. Do you remember Robert Durr saying that Susie Giordano knew that he wrote the cadaver note? Yep. I remember that. He really threw her under the bus because she, of course, denied that and opened herself up to perjury charges. Yeah. So, I mean, her whole testimony was just, I got tired of hearing it. It was just, it was all just lies, lie after lie after lie. It was exhausting. It's interesting because all of these witnesses are called by the prosecution. Did you ever hold any of the frustration with the fact that all these witnesses are coming and going against the prosecution? Because, I mean, obviously you wouldn't have been aware of it, but on some of these court TV and law and crime shows, there were some critics that were saying he, you know, the prosecution's boring the jury the prosecution's wasting the time of the jury. What was your feeling about that? No, I mean, I think the prosecution had to bring these people in. Uh, they can't control what attitude they're going to have, you know? I think there's no way around it. You have to have all of these witnesses come in. And the prosecution can't control what attitude these witnesses are going to have. All they can do is is ask questions. And, you know, one thing about uh, John Lewin that I really appreciated is he was very persistent. He would ask the questions over and over, and uh, he would find uh, different ways of asking. And he, <laughs> I loved how he, <laughs> he always had that little clip ready to go to show them in, in a lie. That must have taken a tremendous amount of work and, and preparation by the uh, prosecution, but you know it paid off because it showed like it showed their character, it showed how easily they lie, and it showed their their intention that they weren't there to uh, 
to try and tell the truth as they said they would in their oath. I mean, they had a completely different agenda. It was driven by money, and they're trying to keep themselves in good standing with uh, Robert Durst so that they can make it on that will. That was very clear to me because I don't think they, I don't think they were there because they believe Robert Durst didn't do it or, or they believed anything else. I think it was solely for the purpose of making sure they got on the will. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of these same witnesses. What did you make of the whole Doug Oliver saga, his testimony, his back and forth with Prosecutor Lewin? That was really interesting. I would say that often after, you know, a lot of the um, testimony and then, you know, we the jury would leave and we, you know, go up into the elevator. We, you know, obviously we didn't we couldn't discuss anything. We couldn't discuss anything. We all followed the judge's instructions. But I think it was just after Doug Oliver's testimony that, you know, when we left, we would be in the elevator and then, we're, you know, we're just looking at each other like, can you believe, you know, what we just witnessed? And that Doug Oliver was the most arrogant, obnoxious, uncooperative witness that we could ever imagine. For lack of a better word, yeah, he, he came across as a, as a, as a really big a jerk. And it was interesting, the fact that it was the um, prosecution that brought him up as a, a witness, but then I assumed it was to uh, essentially destroy any credibility he might have, you know, should he be brought up as a character witness for the defense. That's interesting that you perceive that, that that may have been the method to the madness of Prosecutor Lewin's interrogation of Doug Oliver. Yeah, that was my assumption as to why he was there. The prosecution really painted a very comprehensive story of how uncooperative you know, he was, all of his excuses, all of his waffling. And if this guy you know, was a potential character witness you know, for Robert Durst, and that's the way he beha- behaved in in terms of uh, testifying. It, it's like any you know anything he would say in behalf of of Durst as a character witness has got to be just a bunch of BS based upon the character, or at least the character that was pra- portrayed to us in his testimony. Were you disappointed that Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling didn't testify? I was shocked that. Andrew Jarecki and Mark Sperling didn't testify. In fact, you know, we were trying to figure out when we were, you know, I, I was always trying to figure out, you know, the timing of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the trial. Like, when are we going to go into deliberation? And the two things I said, well, we're not even going to get close to deliberation until number one, you know, we have the Asperger's expert come in and, you know, talk about all the uh, medical details of Asperger's syndrome, since that was one of the... Um, uh, from the defense's standpoint, one of the uh, reasons that they used for Robert Durst's defense. 
you know, in the opening, never heard from that again. So I expected that. And I always expected, you know, Andrew Directory, Mark Schmerling to absolutely uh, testify. So I was waiting for that. And that never happened. And one of the key things about the trial with regards, you know, to the jinx was, you know, Robert Durst would always be, you know, questioned and said, you know, well, during the jinx, you know, or or even during the um, the commentary he did for the uh, theatrical movie, you know, All Good Things, you know, he would describe how, you know, he uh, he treated his wife pushing and shoving and dragging her by the hair, you know, during a family event. He was admitting to all of these things that I, I you know, would, would assume if he knew he was going to be on the stand again, he would have never said that. But here's a guy who felt he, he got away with murder and he could say, you know, whatever he want. But now that he was on trial again, he's being asked about these things that make him look very, very guilty. And his answer to all of these things was, oh, Andrew Jarecki directed me to say that. I mean, he would say that a lot. So I always wondered why, why wasn't Andrew Jarecki um, you know, brought brought in as a as a witness to you know either support or dispute what Robert Durst was saying. So I, I wondered about that, but then I thought I guess at at some point maybe the prosecution only or or the defense has a window of which they can bring up witnesses, and if they don't do it, then it's too late. And whoever whoever would have ever imagined Robert Durst would you know just would would say a lot of his incriminating statements were based upon. Uh, you know, he was directed to do so for the entertainment value. But that, again, that was another—that was just another shocking thing that you know we we thought to ourselves almost anything, almost everything that Robert Durst says in his defense is a lie. What did you make of the testimonies of Gene Clark and Susie Giordano? That they were both gold diggers. They were uh, very interested in his money, which you know was really uh, interesting to me because I thought. You know, all these these friends of Robert Durst, you know, potentially they're going to, you know, wind up with, you know, the uh, money or I'm assuming they will. And but, you know, in the case of, you know, his his closest friend, he murders them. So he he murders his closest friend. Robert Durst murders his closest friend. But the people he considers his, you know, real friends are probably only interested in him because he has something to offer them. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections. We begin with Doug Oliver. Under questioning from Deputy DA John Lewin, Mr. Oliver appears to go out of his way to try to make things difficult for the prosecutor. Do you recall previously stating, Mr. Oliver, that you married your ex-wife Rachel in 1973? I don't recall me making that statement. Okay, this is going to be pleasant. Uh, when did you marry your wife, Rachel? 1973. And in 1975, did you believe that you had made enough money and you didn't have to work again? No. Do you recall saying to me during a recorded interview on October 30th, 2019, that in 1975, you thought you had made enough money and did not have to work again, and you moved to Paris, but you ran out of money and came back to New York? Do you recall saying that? No, I do not. Is the statement, Mr. Oliver, I was going to wait a little while, Your Honor, but, but really... Oh, real. So, Your Honor, at this point in time, Your Honor, I'm going to ask that the witness be designated as, as an adverse witness. So, uh, uh, yes, granted. 
Next, we have excerpts from Dick DeGaran's opening statement, in which he raises the prospect of asserting that Robert Durst suffers from a spectrum condition formerly called Asperger's syndrome. Bob doesn't make good decisions. It's part of his makeup. It's, a, it's typical of his emotional condition, which has been diagnosed, and you'll hear some evidence about that, on the mild side of autism. It used to be called Asperger's condition, Asperger's syndrome, but in the latest issue of the Bible for psychiatrists and psychologists, it's, uh, they now just call it being on the spectrum. It's characterized by social awkwardness, by flat affect, lack of uh, outward signs of emotion, an inability to discern the feelings of others, an inability to read social cues. Other people often describe someone with Asperger's or mild autism as a little weird. They have feelings and emotions, but they have a great difficulty expressing. They're generally intelligent and they can be functional, but they have trouble relating to others and they're often seen as loners. We follow with a series of excerpts from the testimony of one of Robert Durst's friends and companions, Gene Clark, who was questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin. At that point in time, you talked about when you're going to these dinners, you actually end up, for lack of a better term, dating. We did go to dinner, yes. And when you went to dinner, was this by yourselves? Yes. Did you consider it a romance? <laughs> David, did you consider it platonic? I considered it a friendship. Who paid? I don't at any point in time, did the two of you have any physical relationship? I object to answering that. Well, I will say no. Okay, no. Did you ever visit Mr. Durst in Houston? Yes. Can you describe the circumstances of that? Yes. Um, he had been unable to travel and been in the hospital, so I traveled to Houston in order to visit him. When you were in Houston, where did you stay? In his uh, condominium. So, ma'am, this is my question. You meet a man at, basically, it's a singles group, correct? Correct. You're going to that single group because you're hoping you might find um, somebody you're compatible with, correct? Part of the reason. And ma'am, would it be fair to say that in assessing compatibility, someone who's a suspect in murdering his wife, that might influence whether or not you're looking at this guy as companion material? No, because my only, my intention of going to that singles group was socializing. So ma'am, even as you sit here today, testimony would be that Mr. Durst's alleged history of being a suspect in the disappearance of his wife, the murder of his best friend, and the killing and dismemberment of Morris Blatt, that was information that you do not think was really relevant to any relationship you might have had with Mr. Durst. Is that correct? That is correct. You found out about his background, and your response to that was, according to you, not to ask him more than one about it, but instead to go down to Texas and spend time with him in his residence. That's true. So I'm asking I cannot explain it. Okay. Finally, we have excerpts from John Lewin's questioning of another of Robert Durst's friends and companions, Susie Giordano. How would you describe your current relationship with Robert Durst? We were very dear friends. We don't speak very often now, but we he's a very dear friend of mine. And when you say friend, would that be the extent of what you would call the relationship? It's platonic, yes. And when you say platonic, can you define what you mean by that? We don't have a relationship in that where other people have, like, we're best friends. We were, I don't understand, platonic is best friends with someone. I mean, obviously, Mr. Durst is in custody, so you could not have a sexual relationship with him now because he's in custody, correct? And I did not in the past. So 
if I were to ask you, do you consider you and Mr. Durst have in any way a romantic relationship, what would be your answer? We do not have a romantic relationship. Have you ever had a romantic relationship? No. Um, do you love Bob Durst? Absolutely. Have you told him repeatedly that you love him? Absolutely. Do you talk about, in the numerous phone calls you've had with him, spending your rest of your lives together? I have, yes. Do you talk about living together in the same house together? Um, yes. And is it your opinion, ma'am, that that is the definition of a platonic, just friendly relationship? Yes. Ma'am, would you agree that the way that you and Mr. Durst refer to the love nest and to how you love each other, that it would be a reasonable interpretation for somebody listening to that to believe that, you know what, they're more than friends. Yes, people could interpret it how they want. <laughs> and ma'am, do you speak that way to any of your other friends? Um, I don't have any other male friends. Now, I want to go way back, and I want you to tell us, how did you and Bob Durst originally meet? Way back, started working at an ad agency, and I did want to meet Mr. Durst. And there's a mutual friend that we had. Who's the mutual friend? Nick Chavin. Nick and I worked at the same agency. I didn't work for him at the time. So I knew Nick Chavin and I wanted to meet Bob Durst. I was single. Bob was very busy at the time. Uh, so it, it took me a very long time. When was this approximately? What year? First time I wanted to go out was 1987. And how old were you back then? I was 21. And fair to say Mr. Durst would have been 44. Is that right? Yes. And... You had an interest in Mr. Durst, is that correct? Yes. Did you know that Mr. Durst was wealthy? <laughs> Not at 21, no. I just knew he was a friend of Nick and he was a client. When did you learn that he was as wealthy as he is? It was a few years later. Ma'am, would you agree that as you sit up here today testifying, that you have a financial motivation to keep yourself in good graces with Bob Durst? No, I, it's unconditional. How much money has Bob Durst given you over the years? 300000 In total, how much money has Bob Durst either directly or indirectly given to you or your family members? In total. Um, I, I, I don't, I, maybe there was uh, 15000 more in, my, in the bills that I had. I, I really don't know exactly. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the early portion of Robert Durst's marathon 14-day residence on the witness stand. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracombe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.